Okay. Um, these verses may not appear immediately dynamic to everybody here. Um, I love them. I just, I took, I had so much pleasure in uh, looking at these verses, and I, I hope that you'll see why as we go through this. Next year is the 250th anniversary of the birth of Rabbi Burns, and uh, in one of his most famous poems, he asks, oh, that God would give ourselves the gift to see ourselves as others see us. It's uh, not a pleasant experience to see yourself as someone else sees you. Sometimes I go and I'd visit another church kind of in disguise, like a mystery worshiper almost, and just sit in as a, a member of the congregation. And it's fascinating as an outsider to get a perception. I wonder how that would work with ourselves. I wonder what people see when they see the church. Because we live in a world which is full of desperately bad news. We live in a world where there's a great deal of need, and we live in a world where people are perhaps prepared now to think, I wonder if there is anything, and if the church has got anything to offer. But when they come, I wonder what they see. I wonder whether they see something beautiful, something which draws them and attracts them to Christ, or whether they see something, to be honest, quite pathetic, small, bickering groups, legalistic perhaps eccentric nutters, as somebody once described. Why do you go to church, David's full of eccentric nutters? Um, this was from a guy who was himself an eccentric nutter, so I thought he'd be quite at home, but he didn't quite see it that way. But that's often the perception that people have. I was at a tremendous lecture last night at, at the university. 800-plus uh, people came to hear this guy, Professor Frank talk about the universe. Now, please come tonight, because I'm going to tell you some amazing information that I got from him that I think fits very, very well with the Bible. Um, uh, come tonight anyway, but it, it's it just, uh, I was just, I just absolutely loved his lecture. But at the end, I wanted to stand up and I wanted to say, listen, this is just the outer fringe of his work. It really is. It's just, you, it, it's so possible to know God and to understand our place in this universe. I will say one thing that he said. He said, the universe is much easier to understand than human beings because human beings are much more complex than the universe. Now, that's a very interesting thought. Um, of course, the universe is not made in the image of God. Human beings are, and that's another uh, interesting thought. But come along tonight, and you'll hear this explained a little bit more. Um, but as we look at this, as we think about the church and what people see, let me just go back a little bit to something we said last week when we were looking at the verses before about reactive evangelism. We saw that that's sharing the good news naturally. Now, the trouble is that we sometimes, and in fact very often, do that in isolation. And as a result, we create isolated Christians who love the idea of community but never experience it. I'll give you an example of that. About 10 years ago, there was a guy who came to the church here, and he said, oh, David, I love it. He says, I love this. I love community. I, I love people being together, and I love the radical thing of the Christian gospel. And he came about once every six weeks. And a year later, he came to see me, and he said, David, I just don't feel part of the community. I said, no, of course you don't feel part of the community because you're not. And he said, no, no, you can't say that. I said, I can say it. 
I said, you rarely, if ever, come. You hardly know anybody. You show no commitment to the people or to Jesus Christ. You say, he said to me, are you saying I'm not a Christian? I'm saying, and I said to him, yeah, probably, you're probably not. You, you, you certainly give no indication of being a Christian. Um, wasn't a very subtle approach, so he didn't come back. But um, I don't regret it. Because you get kind of tired of people talking, yeah, I'm really into community, and I'm really into radical Christianity. And they, they yak, 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 but never actually put it into practice. And we live in this bizarre world where you get people, I, I've seen this, I remember being in the United States and meeting some people who said this. I, I hear it in Dundee as well. People say, oh, I became a Christian. When did you become a Christian? Oh, a few months ago. Which church do you go to? Oh, I don't go to church. Now, the, the Bible cannot contemplate, does not contemplate, it's impossible to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to say, well, I belong to Jesus, but I don't go to church. It's a bit like someone saying, hey, I've just got a job at Tesco's, but I don't go there. Or saying, I've just become a student, but I never go to a lecture. There are some of you who think that's possible. You will soon find out that doesn't work. Or, I love my family. I just love my family. I'm a real family man but I've never seen them. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's why, as we look at this, we're looking at evangelism and the church going together, and we're saying that when people are brought to Christ, they are baptized into the community of His church. We share together. We're the family of God. We have a whole load of brothers and sisters. We cannot pick and choose our brothers and sisters. We cannot say, I like them. I don't like them. I'm going to be a brother to them, but I wish they weren't around. That's not how it works. And we need to get this right, and we need to challenge the prevailing thinking on this subject. I think these last verses in Colossians may just give the appearance of a list of names like your Christmas card list um, or your Facebook friends list where you hardly know if you're a sad person like me. Anyone who you think vaguely you've got some connection to, you want to put them on your friends list because basically you're competitive and you want to have more friends than your children. And but may, these lists in Colossians, they kind of read like that a little bit. But it's not. You, you'll see as we go through this just how incredibly meaningful these names are because they tell us a great deal about the Colossian church and the relationships within it. And I want to suggest it's a kind of uh, aim or a dream for us as a church. And if you're a visitor here and you're from another church, I would suggest that you should be looking for this in your own fellowship. First thing is simply this. This letter tells us, this part of this letter tells us that this is a church where people actually know each other. That's quite important. Long time ago, way, way back in the distant past, about a year after we came to Dundee, I was preaching one Sunday morning, and about 25 people sitting, and some were over there. That was always a popular side. And some were over there and some were here. And it was just scarred all over. And we had a visitor who had uh, been doing some work for us. And he'd, we'd invited him to come to church and he decided to come. I'll never forget what he said because he stood up as we're going out. And he didn't know we weren't supposed to say things out loud. And he said, "Used people don't ken each other, eh? And he was absolutely spot on. For me, it was just like, it was like knife into me. Here we were, 25 people. It's hardly a massive number of people dotted all over the place. And a complete stranger walks in and says, you people don't know each other, do you? 
And he was spot on. And by the way, that's why we began tea and coffee after the service, because of that comment. Now, you'd say, okay, much bigger church now. Surely it's much harder to know people. Well, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. We need to be a church where people know one another. See, look at verse 7. Tychicus, he says here. We're just going to go through some of these names. He's one of Paul's intimate friends. He's a dear brother. He came from Turkey. We know that he spent time with Paul in Rome when he was in prison. We know that he was given this letter, and he was also given the letter to Ephesus and the letter to Philemon. And Paul says, I'm sending you to him because he will tell you about me for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances. They will tell you everything that is happening here. You see, Paul could have written. He did write, obviously, but he could have written in much more detail what had happened. Here's my letter. But instead, he sends somebody, and it's a long journey, and he sends somebody who was a companion with him in jail, who was somebody who helped him, and he says, I'm sending you Tychicus so that he can tell you. You know he's a dear brother. I'm going to tell you. Because Here's a basic human principle. Human beings need human contact. There was a survey this week of people who work in offices complaining that they now communicate by email. And literally, I think this is hilarious, by the way, people sitting at a desk, opposite sides of the same desk, when they want to talk to each other, they'll send each other an email. Now, when you think about that, how sad that is, I think it's pretty desperate when myself and Maddie and we're in rooms opposite each other, and we resort to emailing each other because we can't be bothered getting out of our chairs or shouting through the music or whatever. But there was this survey complaining that lots of people felt lonely and isolated in their work because they're sitting at desks in open plan offices and never talking to anyone except when or if they go for their lunch. Sometimes things need to be said. Sometimes you need to speak to people. Sometimes you need to be able to look at people. Sometimes you need to realize that communication is not just about writing words or even saying words. It is eyeball-to-eyeball contact. It is, it is meeting people and so on. See, it's very interesting. If you ever go on, and strongly not advised, but if you ever go on uh, message boards on the internet, it's extraordinary how people who, when you meet them, appear so nice can be so rude and vicious on a message board. Why? because there's a certain degree of anonymity allowed and so on. Well, we need to be a church which doesn't just communicate uh, either by email, because that's pretty useless for a lot of people, because it appears to me that, that most of you don't read your emails, or even letter, though that would be nice to get letters, or even just occasionally bumping into one another on a Sunday. But we need somehow to be able to connect with one another and meet one another. It's a church where people know one another. There's Onesimus as well. Go down to verse 9. Now, he's the runaway slave. He was the slave who ran away from Colossae. His master was Philemon. He was a thief. He stole things. Um, He ran away. He went to Rome. He was converted. He became a very close friend of Paul, and Paul's sending him back. And the whole letter of Philemon is about Onesimus coming back and how he's to be welcomed back as a Christian brother and how before he was useless, because that's a play on his name. His name means useless. Now he's going to be useful. And Paul says, I'm sending Tychicus, my dear friend. I'm sending Onesimus, who was one of you. 
Um, uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends greetings. Aristarchus is from Thessalonica in Greece. He was in Ephesus with Paul and was almost seized when there was a, a riot there. He traveled with Paul on his last journey to Rome. And the word that's used here for fellow prisoner is prisoner of war. And what's happening here is it seems that what happened was as Paul was arrested, Aristarchus basically went and said, arrest me too. Let me be with him too. He was a voluntary prisoner of war. He shared in Paul's suffering. And he says, Aristarchus send you his greetings as well. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the writer of the second gospel, he's there as well. Jesus, who's also, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. Jesus was a very common name. I mean, nobody calls their child Jesus nowadays, not in our culture anyway. But in that culture, Yeshua was a very common name for uh, boys of uh, a Jewish origin. Justice was the Latin term. Yeshua, Justice, uh, Latin name for the just or the righteous. We know virtually nothing about him, but he sends his greetings. Maybe the Colossians knew something about him, maybe they didn't. But he was somebody who had, along with two other Jews, had stood beside him in his uh, problems. A church where people know one another. That's why we need frequent news about one another. Because if we don't have that, then no relationship will flourish. How do we do this? Email, phone, letter, meeting up. I would say, above all, uh, praying for one another. And that's the, the great thing about the prayer notes. It's not that they're mechanistic. But when you're praying for people and then you meet them, it's a wonderful thing, actually, to think, I prayed for you today. You know, it's, it's a great connect with so many people. It's not just gossip. And I think in that we are to have a great capacity for people if we are to really be Christians. Look at verse 7. He's a dear brother. Verse 9, Onesimus is a dear brother. Verse 14, our dear friend Luke. Luke is the dear friend. Go back to Romans chapter 16, and you'll see again in one of these just these fantastic chapters in the Bible that ground the whole Bible in reality. In Romans chapter 16 and at verse 5, Greet my dear friend Epinatus, who was the first convert in Asia. Verse 8, greet Amplilitus, whom I love in the Lord. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. And verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, these women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. You know, where did people get this idea that Paul is this kind of uh, intellectual, cold, hard-headed, hard-hearted person. He's writing to people and he's saying, there's Persis. She's just my dear friend. You know, Paul hates women. And yet, in, uh, allegedly, that's what people say. And yet, you, you, you read Romans 16. And there are several women who are mentioned as his dear friends. He had, Paul has an enormous capacity for people. And we are to be like that. And the reason we are to be like that is simply this. Or the reason we can be like that is we can love because we are deeply loved. And I'll tell you this. 
If your life is one of embitterment, and your life is one of anger, and your life is one of narrowness, and your life is close to other people, and your life is the hedgehog life where you're curled up in a ball and the spikes come up every time anyone comes near you, that says an enormous amount about your Christianity. It may be that you are a Christian, but if you are, you are a very, very wounded and very, very crippled Christian. Because if you knew the love of Christ and what Christ had done for you, then you would not be so defensive and bitter and angry and closed towards other people. This is a church, Colossians is a church where people actually know one another. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to plead and I'm, I'm asking that that's what we be in this church here. You see, there are two ways that can happen. One is to say, okay, it's going to be our own we group. And basically, if it grows beyond a certain size, beyond 30 or 40 people, when we can't really cope with that in terms of knowing everybody, so let's just make it so tight and so closed and so bound up in ourselves that for anyone else to get in, they've really got to go through the hoops. They've really got to, you know, by the time they get there and they become one of us, most 99% of people are going to drop out. And I'm afraid that that's how many groups and many churches, I think, work. Or there is the danger where people say, forget about all that. Um, Church is something that we go to, that we listen to something, and then we go away and we don't need to connect with people. You absolutely do need to connect with people because you can come and you can get the teaching. You can come and you can be involved in the worship. But if you do not become part of the community, if you do not first of all come to know Christ, and if you do not become part of the community, then all the teaching, it will just block. What will happen is you won't be able to put it in practice and it will just dam up in your life and it will just become stale. And you'll get bored and eventually you'll go bye-bye and you're away. You need, as you receive God's word, you need to be able to put it into practice, and you have to put it into practice with your brothers and sisters. There is no option with that one. If you don't do that, you are not following Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important to get to know people. And I know that's so hard. Believe it or not, I'm actually quite shy. And I know no, everyone laughs at that and says, don't be daft. But I am actually. Um, but you ha- I had to overcome that. You have to overcome it in different ways. And I know in a church, sometimes you feel so embarrassed when you walk up to someone and you say, hi, are you new here? Oh, I've been here for 15 years. Well, listen, that's not really going to happen here. Most of you have come here in the past three or four years or whatever, but it's still, you feel a bit embarrassed about it. Um, how do you think I feel when I say to somebody, uh, is this your first time here? No, I've been here six weeks and you've asked me the same question every week. I I, I apologize to all of you I do that to. I completely apologize. It's old age and a brain with a limited capacity and so on. But keep doing it. Some of you will remember Colin McLeod, who was with us here uh, working with uh, internationals. Colin has this amazing capacity for language. He can preach in six languages, can speak another 14 or something. And I said to him once, Colin, do you have a photographic memory? He said, no, 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 I don't have a photographic memory. I said, how do you do it? He says, I just talk to people in their language, and I get it wrong. But when I get it wrong, then I remember. And I thought about that in terms of friendship, that in, and in terms of being able to love. 
when you try and you get it wrong, when you embarrass yourself or you make a wee fool of yourself or, or whatever, um, you learn. You learn. You learn to love and you learn to care for people and you learn to get to know people. You will get so much more, and I say this, I say this to absolutely everybody, older people, younger people, students, workers, whatever. If you came to this church and you didn't really speak to people except those people you already knew, then in all honesty, you will not really get all that much. But when you open yourself out, not you know, telling everybody your, your whole life story, in fact, most people would shy away from you if you wanted to do that. You know, hi, my name's David, and do you want to hear about everything that's happened to me? Well, no, not really. Probably not. But it's just being friendly and just taking time to get to know people. Then it will make an enormous difference to you. Now, that's why we do things like congregational meals. We don't have congregational meals because people are hungry. We know you've got homes to go to, and we know you'd probably prefer your own food, except the handful of you we know are pretty desperate. But the, the rest, you know, we know it's a bit of a trackle and so on. And we know that going back to your nice warm fire and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, of course. But the reason we do stuff like that is so that people can get to know one another and share with one another and get a better grasp of who we really are. And that surely is only just a beginning, a church where people know one another. Second thing I notice about this is it's a church where people work together. Now, I want to say something here about two models of ministry that there are. There's a kind of, or two models of church even. The first is where the minister and leader in a church is like a priest. He's the go-between between the congregation and God. He's an employee of the congregation, paid to do certain things which people consider ministry, prayer, Bible teaching, pastoral work, evangelism, social work, youth work, worship leader, and so on. If you're in the free church, you basically have to be married so that your wife can be a free second worker, and nothing happens amongst the women unless the minister's wife is there, and so on. That's that, you know, unwritten contract that's there. If the minister plays his role, the congregation are happy, and he keeps his job. It's a completely unbiblical model, and it is a model that has devastated the church and continues to devastate the church. The one-man-ban model is horrendous. I think what we have in Colossians is the Pauline model, the Jesus model, the New Testament model, where instead of a one-man band, you have the church as orchestra, where the ministry is shared, and where the whole body of the church is called to ministry. We each have different functions, but we each minister to one another. Let me give you some examples. There are lots of others, but I can think of three areas just right now. One would be pastoral work. It is absolutely impossible for one person to pastor a congregation of, you know, 150 people. Absolutely impossible. And what you end up doing is you end up firefighting. You end up going to people who have particular problems, or you end up going to people who you know are going to complain. And you go and visit them, and the, re- the reality is you're visiting them because you know if you don't visit them, they're going to complain. It's gonna, you, the last thing you want is people complaining. We all want peace, and so on. It's not really biblical pastoral care. How do we care for one another? Well, we look at the things we've... We, you have a collective leadership in the New Testament. Uh, you don't never have one elder, one minister. You have a collective leadership. 
You have, uh, we, we try and set up things like pastoral groups, but the bottom line is we are to look out for one another and to care for one another, and that comes back to knowing one another. Yes, of course, things need to be organized, and of course, different people will have particular roles. But pastoral care is looking for one another. I remember visiting one young couple who were very, very upset that, um, you know, they hadn't been visited for a while and people hadn't come out to see them and so on. And I asked them, when did you invite somebody out to your house for a meal? And when did you go and visit someone? Never. Never. They just expected it. This, This is something. We come to church. We put in our collection. This is the service we expect. They had no concept of what New Testament ministry is. Pastoral work is caring for one another. And then in evangelism, we do it together. It's like with the Christianity Explored. If we were to run the Christianity Explored, it will take about, I think, uh, 20 people to be directly involved. It'll take another 20 people, I hope, and more to be praying and so on. Or, for example, take this evening with our our fellowship and so on, and and next Sunday evening, especially when we invite people and so on. It's not going to happen because of the dynamism of one particular person or even of a small group of people. It only happens as as we work and we connect and we share together. Evangelism is something we do together. Teaching, that's something that we do together as well. There are different teachers in the congregation here. I think it's wonderful when I hear... Um, well, I better not name names, but yeah, no, I better not. When I hear about um, women in the congregation who are involved in teaching, when I hear about men in the congregation who are involved in teaching, and at different levels with different abilities, and it's and it just for me, people say, "Do you feel threatened by that? Are you kidding?" It's it's a fantastic thing that there are different people who can share and be involved in teaching. Some people say, well, if that's the case, what's your job? My job is, as you know, to work one day on a Sunday and to spend the rest of time contemplating life. No. My job is prayer, teaching, pastoral care, shepherding, and so on, but not as an individual to, to help with the whole of that. And it's my privilege to be employed to do so. Now, what I love about Paul in this, he's no prima donna. In Romans 16, numerous men and women are listed as his fellow workers, his fellow slaves. Actually, by the way, that's important because Paul lived in a culture where as a proud Jew, the last thing you wanted to be was a slave. But I love this. He writes to the Colossians. He writes to the Romans and he says, isn't it wonderful we are fellow slaves together? And it just so goes against the grain in his culture. And by the way, it goes against the grain in ours. Have you ever wondered how we're living in a culture where we're all given grand names? When I, I go and speak to places, people say, how do you like to be introduced? And I say, well, I'm David Robertson. They say, yes, but doctor? And no, I'm not a doctor. You know? I mean, actually, in American churches, I give up now. They just um, announce me as Dr. David Robertson. I must be. Otherwise, why would I be speaking in their church? I must be a doctor. Or senior pastor. I always think that's so funny. I'm the senior pastor of St. Peter's Free Church. Where's all the junior pastors? You know, it's just, it, it's just strange. But that's the culture we live in. Everyone's a director. Everyone's a senior manager. Cleef, chief cleaning operator. My favorite title was a friend of mine who said, what do you do? He says, I'm an apprentice broom operator. I just took a wee, it sounded better than I sweep the floor in a garage, you know. But 
People want just big titles. Paul says, I'm a slave. I'm a slave. Paul's not a prima donna. A faithful minister, a fellow servant. There's a faithfulness and a loyalty that's there. We need that. We need to work together in partnership where people come on board who want to be partners and fellow workers, where people's, where fellow workers are appreciated, not moaned at, and we need to do the same. And that brings me to the third thing. It's a church where there is encouragement. Look at verse 8. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. How do we encourage each other? Number one, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says this, let's not give up meeting together as is the habit of some, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. In other words, meeting together is encouraging. It's encouraging to, to, when, when you come and worship. You know, sometimes you think, I can't be bothered going to church today or tonight, or I can't be bothered doing this, I can't be bothered doing that. Do you realize what an encouragement it is when you do come and share with your brothers and sisters? And do you realize what a discouragement it is when it is the opposite? We encourage one another by being with one another. I think there's another way of encouragement as well. Look at verse 10, where it says about Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, I'm not going to go into the details because of the time, but in Acts 15, the story is told from verse 36 to 41 of what happened with this young man, Mark. He was with Paul, and he was with his uncle Barnabas, and he deserted Paul. He chickened out. He was not reliable. And there was a big fallout between Paul and Barnabas over Mark. Paul said, this kid is not reliable. He's not coming with me. He's a young man in a hurry. He can't be trusted. Barnabas, who was just the son of encouragement, that's what his name was, stood up for his relative. Because even in church, when it's family involved, it distorts a whole lot of things. And Barnabas, I think, got it wrong. But there was a big rift between encouraging Barnabas and teaching Paul and they split. Well, there's another story of people screwed up in their relationships. But not here, because this is very same Mark. Twelve years later, Paul is saying, welcome him. Welcome Mark. You've received instructions about him. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, Paul says, Mark is very useful to me for ministry. Mark had changed what had caused it teamwork, the encouragement of Paul, the the encouragement of Barnabas, the severity of Paul, the friendship of Peter, all brought Mark closer to Jesus. And this young man who had tried to follow Jesus and had tried a particular ministry and had failed and fallen flat on his face was restored. I think there's great news. You can fail and you can recover. I much prefer the notion that we will have people in this church who will try and who will fall than people who cower away and say, I can't do anything, I can't do anything. You fail and you recover. He became mature and useful. Of course, for Paul, there was encouragement in this guy called uh, Jesus, verse 11, Jesus Justice as well. Because he's one of only three Jewish believers who brought comfort to Paul in Rome. Why were there not more? Because then as now, it's so hard to get over our own self-obsession and comfort. 
There's a deep disappointment in Paul that his own people did not support him. And let me say this. There is nothing more discouraging. The, the, the antagonism of the world is not discouraging. The hatred of the world is not discouraging. What's really discouraging is Christians who nip your head all the time. What's really discouraging is Christians who never stop moaning or Christians who just give up or Christians who seem to go against all the time any attempt to, to, to proclaim the gospel. And Paul said, you know, here I am in Rome, I'm in prison, and there's only three, only three of my fellow Jewish believers. And there were lots of them. The whole letter of Romans was written to them. He said, only three who stood by me. There's loyalty in some and disloyalty in others. Let me just say that the last thing in this is what you can get from these verses is this is a church which reaches out beyond its own borders. Onesimus, verse 9, he's one of you. But I want you to welcome also, he says, Mark and Justice and Aristarchus. We have no indication that they had ever been to Colossae. And they had to travel there, and they were going to go there, and it was no easy jet in those days either. This is a church which had an interest beyond its own borders, and that's also essential. There is an enormous danger in navel-gazing, just thinking about ourselves. Here is the, the wonderful truth. The more open you are to people coming into your church, the more open you are to evangelism, the more open you are to getting to know people, the more open you are to encouragement the more you will be open to reaching out to the whole world. The minute you start saying, it's about me and my church, it's about my feelings, it's about what I want, the minute I say that, then spiritually we are drifting away from Jesus Christ. This is a church which reaches out beyond its own borders. I have no interest whatsoever in St. Peter's becoming a nice, cozy wee group which navel-gazes at itself all the time. We are here to glorify Jesus Christ. We are here to welcome people into the kingdom. We are here to encourage and to build people up in their most holy faith. We are here to be a body of people that when people come in, they say, you know each other and you know the Lord. Truly, God is amongst you. How is all this possible? Just go out and try harder? Have a few people, more people around for a cup of tea? No. Go back to verse 7. With this, I'll, with this I'll finish. He's a dear brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. Verse 11, working their fellow workers for the kingdom of God. If your eye is fixed on Jesus Christ, if you are looking for His glory, if you are looking for His kingdom, which Paul tells us in Romans 14, 17, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, then what's just been said here is something that will naturally or even supernaturally flow out of you. Because as you look to Jesus Christ, you love His people and you want to encourage His people. When you look to Jesus Christ, you see the broken world which He died for and you want to reach out to that broken world. When you look to Jesus Christ, you see the hurt that you have experienced from other people and you do what He does, which is forgive those who have hurt you. And you see, when you have that, it creates such a dynamic, creative, 
set of, of relationships within a fellowship that's constantly like, um, like the Big Bang in the universe, as, as I was hearing last night, that just, it just keeps interacting and keeps expanding and keeps growing because there's just variety and change and, and growth and everything. And even with discouragements, there's still all this that is going on. My heart, says the psalmist, delights in the Lord's people. I think that that um, is what surely we long for and what we look for. As we are a church that's focused on Jesus Christ, then uh, these things will, will happen and develop more and more. So, it's simple. If you're not a Christian, you need to come to know Jesus before you can really get to know the rest of us. It's the best way. And when you do become a Christian, we will be, we are your brothers and sisters. If you are a Christian, forgive me saying this, you need to get over yourself a wee bit and start looking around and looking at people, other people, through the eyes of Christ. Don't use God, don't use Jesus to build your own wee world in which you are king. Please, just trust Jesus enough to love other people and let go of your own self-centeredness. Let's pray.